the Standing Orders podcast. Welcome to this latest edition of the Standing Orders podcast with me, Dr. Thomas Foreman, and my co-host, the Emeritus Mayor, Sue Lorne. Good morning, Thomas. How are you? I'm very well, and how are you? Fine, thank you very much. Just fine and dandy. It's a beautiful morning, which is lovely to see the sun again. We haven't been very good with our weather this summer, so it's always a pleasure whenever you see the sun shining. I always wonder whether when I start the podcast and I introduce you and there's a pause, whether you um, kind of are waiting for me to say, how are you, or something, or whether you are just doing a dramatic pause before you say, Good morning, Thomas. <laughs> I always like to be dramatic. Okay, that's fine. As long as you're no, expecting me to it. start saying something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do it intentionally. I just think that uh, I, just, I, well, I think I say it pretty much as soon as you've said it. No, you Good don't. Good morning, Thomas. There's a kind of, there's like a couple of seconds where it's just dead air. Which actually <laughs> isn't a bad thing in some ways. <laughs> we well, could arrange more dead air. Talk, really talking good. over you, as we are now. And you've, you've <laughs> illustrated that perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there's this, they, I think there's this thing that they say with podcasts is that like, um, basically like being, I think they call it like microphone courtesy or discipline where you, you learn not to talk over each other so it doesn't sound like a rabble. And what I'm really happy with is that we sound like a rabble because I think it's far better <laughs> to just be so naturally sticking stuff into a conversation rather than being so disciplined that you're thinking about what the other person is saying instead of, I want to get my point across first. <laughs> yeah, just don't care really. But no, and it's true though, whenever you say that there is a, a few seconds in between you saying good morning and me saying good morning or good evening or good afternoon or whatever, that um, that few, even though it is literally maybe a fraction of a second, I it, it does seem like a long time on whenever you're recording something, the space in between can seem like an eternity. So I'll do better next time, Dr. Foreman. <laughs> well, that would be the first time in eight years. Eight, eight years that we've known each other. <laughs> You'll do <Eight> better. Years. <laughs> so, eight years of ever talking, talking over you. To be fair, you're lucky someone else is not here. Otherwise, they'll give your actual age to say how long it's been. Um, so, <laughs> what are we going to talk about today then? So I thought what I would touch on uh, to start with is one of the biggest things that's happening, um, I think, in the council sector generally, which impacts on um, community councils, which is, um, I think we've touched on this like before, but it, it just kind of keeps on rolling, which is um, asylum. Um, and, you know, I think Kent has, has challenged the fact that they are taking more unaccompanied children than anyone else, and that there's lots of kind of noise being made by the councils about how important it is to to kind of take children and look after them but actually not many of them are and Kent's disproportionately taking a greater number which is going to impact on communities and infrastructure there um but then again it's going to have less impact on infrastructure elsewhere so there's always going to be that that kind of balance um and then I thought we would just touch on that very kind of topical thing of nutrient neutrality, which we covered 
kind of at length last year, um, I, I was going to say ad nauseum um, because that that is probably mm-hmm. more fitting. Um, but I yeah. think you know there's there's been a few developments with nutrient neutrality, and so it may be just touching on that for just a few minutes because it's not everyone's cup of tea. Because again, it does relate to sewage, so it's not perfect. But also, I think you had a general view you wanted to raise about. Um, I think generally about civil servants and uh, and what civil servants are doing at the moment and your views generally on the civil service. Well, yes, there, there, there was that. But the other thing that I really wanted to talk about was going back to last week, we were talking about how many people were resigning, councillors, new new councillors resigning, and um, and the impact that was having on, um, you know, the, the cost of... Uh, elections to, to to replace them but uh the other thing that i'm um concerned about in relation to councillors and um is that they're being outspoken um about their views which isn't particularly um it's not um racist um and to them it won't be classed as being racist but um if you're being disrespectful to one part of your community um, then it's you know it, it's not acceptable whether they're disabled or um, they're, they're you know their race religion or whatever um, you know sometimes being a counsellor you do have to keep your opinions to yourself and um, and I've seen in in our local paper that there was another counsellor recently who had. Um, had been outspoken about his well views. come on tell and, us more um, this sounds like you're, you're very sensitively beating around the bush a bit um <laughs> come on give us some no, details i'm going to be sensitive because otherwise i would be the same as him i'm just saying that i think that it is you know councillors need to understand that sometimes they have to keep their opinions to themselves um as opposed to airing them out in a WhatsApp group or on, um, you know, just a passing conversation in a, in a bar or something that people can overhear, you know, it's you, you're, you've been elected to represent everyone in your community. So whether you n- don't necessarily agree with what everyone in your community does or where they come from or what they do, um, it's not your place to go and, and put it out there for uh, everyone to, to know. So it's just being respectful. You know, you just have to be respectful of your community and um, and the residents that you're representing. Yeah, I think just, I just, just well, I see what you're saying. I, I, I guess it isn't just, how could I put it? You see, I'm, I'm not sure it's keeping your opinions to yourself. I think it's actually about, you know, having the ability to challenge your own prejudices, your own views. And I think when you're elected to office, like, that's what you need to do. You need to look at your views, you need to look at your opinions, and you need to challenge yourself on them. And you need to say, you know, you are elected to to serve a whole community, those who voted for you, those who didn't vote for you, those who didn't vote at all. You know, and I think challenging your your preconceptions challenging what you believe to be true of parts of your community it is actually a really important part of it because it's all about educating yourself and you're right i have seen a few things in the paper about um perhaps some some comments that well not perhaps specifically about some comments that have been made by elected councillors relating to people who have protected characteristics and 
you know, sometimes I think, sometimes I think that we as councils, you know, always make sure that we do like EDI training for our members. We we try and do as much of that as we as we can. You know, we're doing kind of face to face as well as online with the test to make sure that kind of people do understand what they're being told and they do understand the kind of application of that but I think there is only so much you can do unless the person is willing to actually take on board and do something about it and I think that going back to to what we were saying about monitoring officers powers over councillors I I think that people feel emboldened to hold views because they feel completely untouchable and I think monitoring officers' hands are tied. And I think it's really difficult for officers when you have councillors that come with views that you professionally feel bring the council into disrepute, not just personally, but you professionally feel actually, you know, this is way over the line. And this councillor really does need to, like, to look at themselves. And well, this councillor really needs to basically lose their seat um, because they aren't they aren't worthy, nor are they capable of representing their community. Um, but we don't have that. You know, the government took away the ability for, for councillors to be removed. Um, and it's now more difficult to get rid of a councillor than it is an MP. Mm. And you see, and the problem as well is that sometimes whenever these councillors go and put their opinions out there, um, and it's, it's not necessarily, you know, and I, I totally appreciate you can do all the diversity training in the world, but the person that you are isn't going to change. You, you could just learn how to, um, how to behave, uh, in your pub, you know, in, in your role as a counselor. Um, but that won't necessarily take away that inner feeling that you have that, you know, that, um, we're going to go on to asylum seekers in 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 a minute, but um, you know, whenever and I'm sure that there's lots of people all over the country that are thinking, uh, you know, this the the boat situation is is absolutely horrendous, and you know we we need to take them on board, but we also need to be aware that those residents who've really living in these villages, these towns, and and these counties that um, are finding it hard to get a dentist, a doctor, get a hospital appointment, um, you know, just the daily, you know, routine things that that we we no longer have, um, the luxury of just phoning up and saying, can I have an appointment in a couple of weeks' time? Because we're so, you know, we're so, um, we're losing all the professionals that give us this, um, you know, the, the hospital appointments, the dentists, um, schools even, you know, uh, the, there's no spaces in those either. So you can understand that people can get frustrated and and think that it's acceptable to sit and say, you know, there's, is, there's no place here uh, for asylum seekers anymore. But you then have to understand that you're upsetting a lot of people. But I know one councillor who said a few bits and pieces about um, the residents in in the area that he well he wasn't just talking about one area he was talking about the whole country, and um, he, he <laughs> nothing was like being really general. Quite, um, <laughs> he, no, because the response that he got from all over the well, not just the county outside of the county, saying that he said the right things, and and he should be he should be allowed to stand as the next MP for for this area. 
And um, and you think, wow, you know, is it, it, we are we that controversial these days that you know you can go and say something really detrimental against a few people, a lot of people, you know, and you, know. you get slated for it, or you get you know exiled up into the into the grand heights of being an MP. It's it's a really strange situation. I guess you know, I, I how I off, well, how I see things like this is I, I'm I'm a strong believer that the more people feel marginalised, the stronger they will come out in force. And throughout history, um, it's been marginalised people who have come out and have protested that have changed things. And you know, whatever kind of group you look at that has been basically persecuted or had no rights or had their rights removed. At some point, you know, they will protest. At some point, it will kind of shine through and the timing and everything comes together and they affect change. And I think when you look at, you know, the uprisings in in countries throughout the world where there have been dictators that, you know, months before, you know, would have been untouchable, suddenly, you know, they're fleeing the country. And it is all about timing. Yeah. Um, I think with local authorities, just bringing this from the international down to the the, the local um <laughs> i think when you look at councillors uh the one thing that i i've kind of picked up with like districts and with county that when there are divisions within parties and um, particularly the ruling party it's because they don't feel they're being listened to and that the amount of rebels you get in ruling parties is normally because they feel the leadership isn't listening to their own party members, never mind anyone else. And it's then that you start to get, you know, people not turning up yeah. to meetings, people abstaining. They they won't go as far as to vote against the leadership, but they certainly won't show their support for the leadership. And that's why I always say scrutiny is really important. You fund a really good scrutiny section. You you have an executive that listened to it. That's the the voice for people to be able to oppose things in a very structured way which then you know allows the executive to give reasons why they aren't taking it forward or perhaps that they are and then at least people are being listened to and i think that the same applies to the public i feel that you know you have a and i'm going to be really well i'm going to try and be be careful in how i word this um but i think you have at the moment a kind of a narrative that is expressed in the press that gives um, a lot of weighting to perhaps more liberal views um, and leads people to the belief that their views, when they are on the right of the political spectrum and they have, you know, sometimes legitimate concerns about things, that they are being marginalised and not listened to and that their rights are being stepped upon. Now, that isn't actually the case, but is what is often portrayed in the press, which leads mm-hmm. people to then express themselves in very strong, very forceful, very often kind of distasteful ways. And when someone does that, a kind of a, a, a swell will often appear around them of people who feel the same, but have never felt the ability to say it because they think that yeah. they'll be accused of yeah. all kinds of things within kind of the social arena. Mm-hmm. And so when someone steps up and does it, 
suddenly they feel that actually someone is giving me a voice and so I will support that person and I would privately vote for that person because what they're saying is something I believe in. But that's because they've kind of been, if if you like, kind of given the the belief that they aren't being listened to in any other way. And I think that's why you end up with big charismatic people on the the right side is coming out with grand statements and often completely uh-huh. undelivering on them. And so I think that's why you probably find this councillor getting lots of people saying, you should be our MP. Um, but actually, uh-huh. if it went to it, I would hope that a majority of people would would take a more, should we say, a more liberal view and a more balanced view and not go for hard on one side, but actually balance all of these important subjects. And I don't think there's anything wrong with with kind of talking about difficult subjects you just have to ensure that your right to free speech doesn't actually take over anyone else's right um in the process yeah well we and we have i covered myself successfully no that was very good that you you certainly turned that around really well um yeah so should we move on now (laughs) yeah i think so quickly But this is the thing you 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 always have you always are so guarded on what you say, um, because you're you're always worried that you're going to offend somebody, and it's not necessarily your you know intentions to do that. But um, yeah, I, I think that and I think we have you know majority of us are a nation of who are more guarded in what we say. You you are you have got sympathy for um, everyone's opinions. But, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's a strange country that we're living in at the moment anyway. So strange times. So uh, we just need our government to, whichever government is going to be there over the next few years, to start pulling things around for making sure that everybody is accommodated in hospital, schools, dentists, and all of those areas that we are seriously lacking at the moment. We need to make sure that it's focused on that and uh, getting the the staff workforce that's needed to put us back into a country that are capable of providing for the needs of the residents that we've got in it. Absolutely, and and I will, you know, I'm going to say one. I'm going to say something really controversial now, oh, um, which I think was actually, I think this was actually a pledge or. Or something by Boris Johnson, which which surprises me no end, therefore, that I'm going to suggest it, which is coming on to the issue of asylum. And we'll touch on it briefly because um, I I think there's a lot of concerns within local authorities um, and MPs, like constituency MPs, that, you know, the Home Office is imposing plans, um, which will basically mean that a lot more hotels are being used for asylum seekers, despite the pledge not to do so, and that more and more hotel rooms are therefore going to be booked. Um, And I think, you know, every day you open up the paper and you see different councils are challenging the government on planning grounds for different things they want to do. Mm -hmm. They're challenging companies that are planning to do these things, so they're taking companies through, um, like, the Mm -hmm. planning process and through the planning inspectorate, for you know different buildings different boats different campsites different hotels they're all going to be used Mm -hmm. for you know people seeking asylum and i think that you know councils are trying to vent their frustration using the levers they have but there is a very strong kind of view from central government that 
they don't really care and they're going to continue anyway because people need to go somewhere, which is actually correct. They do need to go somewhere, but it's just whether do. the numbers mm-hmm. like are being shared equally throughout the country. But equally, you know, I would also say that, you know, the, the sites that are used for asylum um, kind of cases to be reviewed and for people to stay for months on end need to be places where they actually have access to services, facilities and, mm-hmm. you know, kindred people, you know, people mm-hmm. who they speak the same language of, people that they can have a mutual understanding of. And I think that governments are, well, I think the government is too concerned to actually, you know, start doing basically what, what I would hope governments would do, which is, you know, naturally, and and when I've looked at this previously with another hat on and spoken to um, people seeking asylum, um, they will often go to countries and to cities where there are already people from their country settled so that they are then yeah. amongst people that can help them integrate. And they often integrate into that community within that city, first of all. And then often they do quite well, you know, they may get well-paid jobs. And it's then that they move out of those communities into the more affluent communities, which is why you find some areas of cities never seem to to kind of get the benefit of money being invested into it, because as soon as people get money, they move out of it. Um, that That's kind of by the by. I think the, the government need to look at, um, at how how they disperse, you know, new arrivals Mm -hmm. into areas where they are likely to be able to integrate within a community of people of a similar background or from a, um, or from a similar country. Um, I think otherwise we're looking at, um, you know, potentially mixing things up so much that it is going to undermine community integration. But I would finally say, I think that, I think it was Boris, um, we, we need to kind of look at a system of kind of, well, I would say registering asylum seekers and allowing those who arrived illegally to, to stay and have an amnesty on it because ultimately people are here now and we're an island. You're not going to get many boats that take people back. And so it would be better to regularise them and understand it to draw a line as opposed to anything else. But that, I suspect, is a bit for the birds. Yeah, we have got the boats that will take people off uh, the island, but you have to pay for those. Well, I suppose they pay for theirs in a, in a, in the you know triple the amount of cost that it would be for us to get on a P and O ferry and um, and and go back into Europe. But I might going back to to what you've said about where they people have been dispersed to and the placements that they're putting them into my I've, I've got real concerns about where um when they're, they're placing asylum seekers into um a community that is from um you know the country that they've come from or um you know or, or something similar to, to where they've, they've come from if you're coming to this country, um, and this is not being racist or prejudiced in any way, if you're coming to this country, you're coming to the country because you want to be part of what the the country and the community communities in in England are all or the UK are all about. So I can't see that you you can come here expecting that you can then go and set set up a small um, island. Um, in inside 
the UK that will make you that's your community that you've 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 fled from to and you know to 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 come to the same community that you that would be here I appreciate that they're all seeking asylum but I think that if they were to be um more within you know the the community that they're coming to so um you know the housing estate that we're on is is a, is a massive housing estate. So, I I would say you know okay you need to find them placements within the communities that we have already, not necessarily the communities that they're um, you know they're fleeing from to the people that are already here. As you said, that most of them come because they've got friends or family or here already, um, and they want to be with and them. I would say, but you know, English is a common language. <laughs> For so many people, and I don't think that we are educated enough about, you know, the British influence in some countries, because a lot of people associate greatly with, you know, the English language and with the UK, because it is a strong part of their history. Um, Whereas I think that we kind of don't really know enough about the impact that we have had to really understand why these people often choose the UK for that kind of shared language and, and, and shared culture. And again, they, they have this, yeah, but again, they have this idea that, um, you know, because we were, um, you know, we had some say in how their country was, was run 50, 60 years ago. Um, and, and then they feel that, yeah, it's, you know, it, it is their, their right, their place to, to come here if they want to. But, um, my, my other main major concern is that are we teaching, um, you know, in, in schools the history of how things were? We can't change history. You know, we can't change how, um, you know, the 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 people who uh, went around the world and and took over these various countries and 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 did some really horrendous horrendous things going past in 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 time. We can't change that, but we have to teach the children in our schools today as to what they did and the reason why people feel the way they do today about how history played out all those years ago. So the children of today, the youth of today, should always be taught the history. I think that they're in some schools they're trying to, to say, no, we, it's not discussed anymore uh, because that was a really bad time and, and let's not... Um, let's not, you know, go over it again and and remind people of what what we did. Um, you know, going back to the Commonwealth, you know, it was pretty horrendous stuff that was happening. But anyway, you know, we we have to make sure that we we still teach in the schools what we did, and and it wasn't anything to be proud of back then. But being the Commonwealth, we had we did have a unitary situation where everybody was you know you felt part of something and then it's only as the generations got older and they thought well hang on a minute you know we we were not part of them we're a million miles away and um and we need to take back our own you know take back our own rule and but then again you could go over to northern ireland and and see how that's working out but um it's it's a case of we have to understand why they do what they do and the reasons for it um and and treat the people with respect that are coming here because they feel it is their their right and their place to be part of the united kingdom 
But the other thing as well is that we have to be mindful that these people are being sold a ticket that is supposed to be bringing them to something that's a lot better than what they had. And I know that, you know, that they can walk the streets and feel safe and, the, you know, compared to what, what they did in their homeland. But we're bringing them and we're putting them, as you said, we're putting them into holiday camps, putting them into hotels. We're putting them into, you know, the, these different, um, we're turning offices into accommodation and and we're putting them into old, I think there's one over at the, the, the trying to do in Essex, um, where they're putting them into an old um, officer's um, uh, site um, that used to be the army or the air force or something. Mm-hmm. And, but they're not having any quality of life. You know, no. they, they're, they're more like being put in a prison cell than they are being put in into a, a decent accommodation. And, but we, we're letting these people come here and we're not giving them any quality of life. Once somebody's got to say, okay, enough is enough at the moment. Let us just organize the people that we have in this country first. Let's give them some kind of quality of life before we take any more people in. I mean, the, the, I don't the think people the... that are coming on the boats, you, you remember, have to remember is that they are already living in countries similar to ourselves. They've already got the, you know, the, um, the healthcare, um, that they and the opportunities that they're going to get here, but the difference is that we have taken on such a volume of people over the past two years that our system can't control it with the people that we've got already here. So for thousands more to be coming continuously every month is not doing them any favors at all. You see now, yeah, I. I I don't see the issue with I I mean we will never stop we'll never stop everyone um and nor do I think we should so I don't think we can say you know stop let's sort out what we have now we need a system that works because there are countries that take a lot more kind of uh, a lot more asylum seekers a lot more uh, migrants generally than the UK does. And I, I think it is just that there's a reluctance from government to spend on a plan and a proper programme which kind of quantifies what the cost of this is. Um, and I think that at the moment with using a few hotels saying, oh God, it costs this many hundreds of thousands or this many millions to do like this amount. Like if they laid it all down and calculated it all out for a complete plan, the concern would be that people would be outraged by it. But I think if that plan included things like education, it included a kind of mechanism for people's qualifications or transferring them, or a kind of a, a system where you can fast stream people, such as uh, people with a medical background or people with an electronics background, mm-hmm. that you can put them yep. through a practical kind of test to see where their level mm-hmm. is, so that you know they don't need to do a three-year nursing course. As long as they learn English, and alongside that, can demonstrate the adequate skill, because. You know, remember, a lot of these people who are fleeing persecution, they don't grab their degree documents with them. But if you can somehow verify that, then we can make use of the skill set that's entering the country instead of treating people like they're surplus to requirements when actually, you know, 
we do need them. But this is the thing, and, and we do, well, you know, the NHS is, is on its knees. Uh, we haven't got um, the, um, the the amount of staff that, that we have. But then again, you know, you, and I think that time has, has shown that sometimes people, um, even people who are brought over by the NHS themselves, don't actually have the qualifications or the degrees that they, they've said they have and uh, they're put in place. But there's nothing to say that you can't, they can't work alongside the the people that, you know, the surgeons, the doctors, the nurses that we already have and work alongside them for a certain period of time. And then once they've, you know, they've shown that they are capable, I wouldn't necessarily want somebody who didn't have the qualifications to do brain surgery to do that on me. But, um, you know, if you've got somebody who is monitoring the situation and they can then um, fast track into the, the system, then that why not use that? Why do you? Why is it a case of we're, we're just putting everybody into these holding cells, and um, and then deciding the most important thing is whether they they stay in this country or they go to Rwanda? You know, there there doesn't seem to be uh, the bigger picture, as you say, that you could use, utilize these these uh, people who are fleeing persecution, and um, and then put them part of the the communities that they're they're in at the moment. But no, I I think that we, I think that we haven't done what our duties um, for such a long period of time that um, things have just built up now that, uh, you know, whenever you see the reports on the news of people, um, you know, the, the, the squalors that they're living in and, and some of the places really, really are so, so bad. And, you know, a few, a few months ago, there was that little, that little child that uh, died because of the, the place that was the damp that was in, in the accommodation that it, it, they were put into. And, you know, you think that you flee persecution to come to a country that's supposed to be totally civilised and look after the people that um, is, is around them. And we put them into that disgusting accommodation and just left them and a little child died. Um, because of the neglect that um, the Housing Association gave them um, instead of looking after them. I just think it's absolutely, we're in, in such a horrendous situation at the moment. We are. Uh, and, and I don't and, see, I don't see any way that we're going to get through this in the next couple of years without a lot more sadder stories coming out. I mean, I, I would also, just as a final point, just say, you know, People like Robert Jenrick and the now infamous painting over of the children's mural at, um, I think it was the uh, intake unit for um, asylum seekers mm-hmm. in Kent. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, I, I baffles me. I'll be honest, I, I, I am speechless by it. Um, I, I just can't understand the, the logic nor the sense. And I just think it is sending completely actually the wrong message in doing stuff like that. And I think it is, well, I think it's a bomb. Um, but that's my view. So shall we move on from, from the very, uh, shall we say, sensitive subjects um, onto something yes. that, you know, I, I think is, is far more, um, well, 
well, I was going to say far less contentious, and it is far less contentious in the grand scheme of things when you put a bit of perspective into it. But that is the nutrient neutrality row that is now starting. So anyone who has listened to any of last year's podcasts, um, nutrient neutrality was a key feature. It's all about basically developers in certain areas not getting planning permission for anything that involves overnight accommodation where they can't demonstrate that the increase in sewage cannot be mitigated either on site or elsewhere to prevent an increase in nutrients entering the watercourse, which would lead to a stimulation of um like plant life, and that would lead to a suffocating of the ecology and impact on flora, fauna, and wildlife such as fish. So there are two types, I think, of, of um, kind of, well, there, there are two things, which is nitrogen and phosphorus, which need to be mitigated against. And, you know, different parts of the country have come to terms with this in different ways. And, you know, I'm working on a project in in Norfolk where I'm leading on the governance uh, stream for a JV, which is looking at um, basically resolving this through the sale of credits. So I am somewhat up on, on where we are locally as well as what the national picture looks like. But it seems as if Downing Street is about to, and I love the term that the MJ use on this, which is wade into nutrient neutrality, given that it's all about water and sewage. So wading in is what the government will be doing, um, because ultimately house builders are held up, planning can't be granted, and apparently um, it, it looks like the new housing supply could be reduced by 43,000 uh, homes. And obviously, there is a real push by the government for building. And so on one side, you have councils and house builders wanting to move forward, because obviously, if you can't allow building in certain areas, which may be like brownfield sites or suitable for development, because you can't mitigate, whereas you could move to a site elsewhere and get planning for it, because it's not going to actually impact on uh, rivers or, or water courses, but it may be, you know, greenfield sites. So eventually developers could end up building in sites that really you don't want them to um, and impact on the flora and fauna there um, because they can't build on brownfield sites because they can't mitigate sufficiently for the sewage. Um, and on the other side, you've got obviously, you know, natural England who are, are there to preserve and to protect the uh, the environment. And that means, you know, putting a ban in on new developments. Does that cover it? Yeah, that covers it perfectly. <clears throat> and just to remind everybody that um, it, this all uh, in Norfolk uh, back in March 2022, um, and it, I guess it it came to um, councillors and residents and developers out of the blue that Natural England were going to impose this ban on um, granting permission for anything that had a bedroom in it. Um and nobody, nobody was expecting it, and and it, we were all in total shock that um, Natural England could impose uh, such a restriction on a whole county. Now, there's there is uh, a few areas in in Norfolk that um, that can um, build uh, without any um, without any problems. I think it was North Norfolk and. Um, were, were, were allowed a very very small part of North Norfolk were allowed to continue, and um, and then the 
the southeast, I think there was. Um, yeah, there were parts of Kingsland and West Norfolk. There was, as there well, was a I few little places okay. anyway that you yeah. could, yeah, that you could you could build on. So, um, and for the major developers, this wasn't going to have a serious knock-on effect because places, companies such as Persimmon, uh, Wilcott, and um, um, Kia, if Kia is still going, Tilly, I think they're called <laughs> now. Those those massive um, companies were were still able to continue in in other areas, or if they'd been given granted their planning permission before March 2022, then obviously, and and they have massive sites, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred houses on a site. So um, so that was fine for them. Uh, they they just carried on as they they would have done previously but for small developers it was um it, it was a hell of a shock and um and everything just came to an end now natural england and i appreciate that you know that they think that and, and somebody needs to stand up and say yeah we need to clean our waters up and our rivers up but <clears throat> nobody seems to be understanding that it wasn't necessarily the 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 developers and the bedrooms in those houses that was causing the major issue of pollution in our waters. And um, it was mostly the farmers and um, they were the ones and, and the, and uh, the um, corporate companies that, um, and the water companies for heaven's sake, they're the ones that are causing the, the, the major issues that we have. So to put a whole county practically on hold the economy of that county on hold while angling water the environment agency the farmers sit down and and the district councils and the county council sits down and tries to work out a plan that we thought would only have taken six months to to you know to rectify to come up with a plan that was going to suit natural england and get the economy running again and as far as I'm aware, the government have done absolutely nothing to help the small or the large developers because those the large developments will also be completed. And then was, is it only whenever they start to shout that the government is then going to get involved? Yeah, I because think, I mean, I, I think the government have, have released a, a huge amount of funding to support um, like uh projects for mitigation basically yeah. and and to to be able to get these sites kind of and mitigation underway but it is just they're not setting time scales for when they'll make the decision on this they're not saying whether or not you know places are successful early enough for them to be able to start work so everything is kind of stalled pending what might happen if they say yes or no so the government certainly could speed things up but i guess once you've finished of what you want to say because i've just interrupted you again um <laughs> do you think that the government will come down on the side of natural england or the developers well i think that um i think that they will be thinking that they should come down on the side of natural england but i don't think they have any choice but to come down on the uh the side of the the developers um i think that um you know, it's, and I've, I've said about this last year. Whenever we talked about this, I don't have an issue with the um, with the, the large developers, uh, major developments being, um, it, um, you know, being able to continue because if they couldn't, then that would be an absolute nightmare. 
But the most, you know, for, for the smaller developers, I think that um, I told you about um, um, a person in this area who had literally, he was just simply days away from um, getting the permission. He, he just put in for a change of uh, a condition. That was just literally a change of a condition on his application. And he was going to do a care home. <clears throat> that this care home had been talked, pushed backwards and forwards for maybe five or six years. Literally needed a change of condition so that he could uh, start the development. And three or four days before it all got put on hold. So he's and he he's got other um, care homes that he is um, you know trying to to keep going whilst he has got the funding for this development that was put on hold three or four days before permission was going to be be granted. So he's got that funding that he has to to you know make sure that it's still going to be there for whenever this permission is granted, but yet keep all these other businesses going at, at the same time. You've got small developers who, um, five, six houses, um, everything was in place to go. And then it was for the outlining for full develop for full permission. Um, it was all, um, it was all put on hold. Our small developers cannot keep going, and I know I heard of one no. yesterday that had folded because um, because they just can't keep hanging on. You know, this eighteen months down the line, and um, and we're still in this situation is just unbelievable. I just can't believe that Michael Gove has done absolutely nothing to help these people. Three years of of COVID. And now 18 months, two years let's, let's, of, of sitting, waiting. I, I, I thought we agreed that because of liability purposes, we weren't naming and shaming. Michael Gove. <laughs> Stop saying his Michael name. I'd to get in touch with you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm since I put the transcript out, he I'm probably telling. gets a Google alert. <laughs> 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 but that's good. Let, let, I'm happily talked to him. I would have happily talked to him uh, back in March 2022 if he'd have been in place then. But um, yeah, it's it's a really really frustrating situation. But yes, the simple answer to the question is that they probably feel that they should come down on the side of Natural England, but it is their duty to come down on the side of the uh, the small developers and the the large developers too. But the other thing that I was going to say is that Blimey. the government tell each area, each district, that they have to build so many houses in um, in, in a five-year time span. Mm-hmm. So the problem that uh, this has caused now by putting – Natural England has caused by putting um, a, a block on any bedrooms being passed for the last 18 months, that the, the supply, the, land, the supply of houses in this district has – fallen beyond belief that anybody who puts an application in will probably get that permission granted because we don't have a full supply of allocation supply of housing our five-year supply has gone out the window so um that's that's an even bigger problem than what it was previously because 
as a district council, you we were able to say, no, we have a five-year supply, so we we don't need to give permission to this um, this application because it's not suitable for the area that they they want to build in. But now you don't have that anymore, so it will be a case you don't have a five-year supply, so you have to grant permission for anything and everything, which is ridiculous. Thank you In for listening opinion. to the Standing Orders podcast by Politis. Please like and subscribe to get your weekly edition. You can suggest topics by emailing podcast at politisconsulting.co.uk. See you next week.